Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Blockchain Won't Save the World on tour. Today, we're going big in Japan. At one time, the country facilitating the highest volumes of Bitcoin trading in the entire world, and now a cautious crypto nation, but with a powerful and growing enterprise blockchain community. The Japanese are famous for their diligent research and only adopting technology when it's truly proven its value. And while this culture has caused frustration and a mass exodus of blockchain projects in the recent past, it's not all bad news. We'll hear about the rise and fall of this OG crypto community and how, despite what many say is now the strictest blockchain regulation in the world, there are green shoots emerging from the plethora of blockchain associations, a national digital asset consortium to rival anything we've seen in the world so far, as well as DeFi and increasingly intimate connection with NFTs. Is there hope for Japan as a blockchain nation again? You'll have to listen in to find out. We start with the crypto-centric history of blockchain in Japan, introduced by Aya Walraven, NFT product leader at Marukari, Norbert Gerke, founder of Tokyo Fintech, Ken Kawai, partner at Anderson Mori and Tomatsune, and So Saito, founder of the So and Sato Law Offices. I went to Japan just for family reasons, and it was also I wanted to spend more time doing one of my hobbies as well. So I do a lot of free diving, and Japan has a very nice tropical area in the south. So I wanted to move there initially. So I was there doing like free diving and stuff, and then I went to Tokyo to join the. At that time, it was like the Tokyo Bitcoin Meetup, and they had it on a weekly basis. It was like the first time I ever went. It was like held at like a, a fruit parlor. In the middle of like Shibuya, and just like five people, and talking about what they learned about Bitcoin recently, and I thought, okay, this is kind of cool. I started going to that meetup on a regular basis. It grew from that like five people crowd to sometimes like upwards of fifty people or more. And through that、uh, meetup, I also met some recruiters who helped place me at a company in Tokyo at an exchange. A lot of people who are into Bitcoin or blockchain here. In Japan, there aren't so many people who are motivated for like political or social political reasons. I think like I find a lot more people who are into Bitcoin in the U.S. or in Canada because they might have some sort of you know libertarian leanings or they have concerns about the economy. It's less that, and I think a lot of it is either technology centric or more recently people are really into NFTs, of course. So that's kind of a big thing too, but. At the very beginning, I would say actually the the expat community was quite strong. So there were quite a few expats at that meetup. I would say it was I accounted for more than half of the people who were there at the time. It became more well known in Japan, and there was more content about blockchain in in the Japanese language. People started to learn about it more, and then gradually that demographic had really changed into a very strong like local native Japanese crowd. So as I mentioned before, like there's a a strong NFT interest recently, and I think that sure there's NFTs are kind of trending everywhere at the moment, but Japan has such a strong culture of art and a very strong culture of like being a collector of something or having a fandom towards something. So I think it's Japan as a country is a little bit more uniquely positioned to to really take off in this area. It definitely wasn't always like this. I would say like the grassroots thing was like definitely how it started. I'm inclined to to believe, or at least suggest, that you know we, we've had a few very large hacking incidents in Japan, like the 2018 or 
around then, I think uh, there was the Coincheck incident, which was like one of the largest crypto heists, you know, in history. And at that time, there were quite a few smaller exchanges or other kind of crypto services companies. And after that incident happened, it really kind of caught the JFSA's attention and um, it became very strict to operate any kind of crypto business or blockchain business. And that kind of brought on this uh, era of consolidation. So a lot of the smaller companies got bought out by larger ones, the ones who couldn't meet the requirements for licensing, either because they just didn't have the, the team size, they couldn't get their compliance together, those kind of things, they kind of just died out. And larger companies that already existed, so this is like your your GMO, more recently also Medicari, but like these larger companies who already existed and didn't do crypto before, saw this as an opportunity to get into the crypto scene because as large companies, of course, they have the money and the human resources to make the license requirements happen. I think the blockchain story in Japan really started with crypto, right? Or Bitcoin, even much more specifically. Obviously, the role that Mt. Gox played as the largest Bitcoin exchange during its time, and then the the, the hack and it going belly up. And there's this anecdotes around at why Japan was such a Bitcoin trading hub very early on, and that inevitably leads you to the discussions of Ms. Watanabe trading FX or specifically the US dollar Japanese yen pair for the most part. And so that if you allow me the view of saying Bitcoin is just another currency, right, going from US dollar uh, Japanese yen to US dollar to Bitcoin, if you trade and flip around, then that wasn't that that much of a stretch. And this mythical Miss Watanabe thing, uh, right, it, it makes a good story and always makes good headlines. Reality is, historically, I think the numbers are, right, it's, it's young males who like maybe social quote a bit who are like trading away like in many other countries and in the same way that they were trading the effects that's also a bit the constituency in the crypto world very early so that was the the start mount gox broke down and then japan actually was the first market that got comprehensive crypto regulation in april 2017 Funny enough, this afternoon, I, I watched Charles Hoskinson responding to the delisting of ADA on eToro, and, and he was making some comments around the, the Japanese regulatory system, which he, and to paraphrase him, I think he said, was the most comprehensive in the world. It was very progressive simply because the FSA as the, the single right financial regulator in, in Japan, which is a great benefit compared to the theater that you see in the US these days, came out with regulation very early. Obviously, exchanges existed, so some were grandfathered, everybody had to apply again. And then in early 2018, CoinShank got hacked. So it's the second major hack in Japan. And all the risks that the FSA had taken to be a bit more progressive in the regulation and allow for innovation to take place and new products to be traded under a regulatory umbrella in a way backfired. And they they had no choice but to go back and do inspections of all the exchanges. Most of them were written up for management deficiencies. 
I had to rectify that. And I would say it cost the industry about a year and year and a half, most likely, to go back and lift up the, the standards. Also, as a result of that, you have this, this system where you can an exchange up and running, let's say, in a relatively a prescribed and standardized way, and we've got close to somewhere around 30. I, I lost count. There's, there's the odd one that's coming up every other month or so, but they're also fairly restricted in terms of what they can trade. So some of them come just out with Bitcoin, Ethereum, Litecoin, and XRP. For example, it's kind of the core four, I would say. With XRP, as Charles pointed also out in that video, being treated as a currency here in Japan, as a cryptocurrency, while in, in the US, you obviously have lawsuit going on, whether it's a security or not. And so you've got 30 exchanges, you've got also restrictive regime now as to what can be listed. So the tokens themselves have to be sponsored by an exchange and then need to be accepted by the JVCEA, which is the self-regulatory organization, and then by extension by the FSA as well. So the long list of trading pairs that you see on Binance or even on Coinbase these days, you don't have here because there's a, a few hundred thousand pages of documentation that, that go into the approvals. That was a long way of saying that that actually, I think it, it started with crypto first and then kind of the blockchain discussion, what, can, what else can we do with this thing, with this technology, obviously came much later. Uh, when we're talking about an, an ecosystem, the ecosystem was primarily crypto and then became maybe blockchain a bit. And, and to some extent, these two spheres maybe have never met, right? Because ones are the, the, the investors, the traders, the speculators, and the others are, let's say, the true builders. And trying to substantiate that also is maybe hard. But when you think about which blockchain has been developed in Japan, there isn't all lot that comes to mind. So the, the two good examples I always have is one is Soramitsu, which is also the technology that underlies the Cambodian digital currency. Then there's state technology with Sota Watanabe, if I get his name correctly, who's doing great work in the Polkadot ecosystem and, and building and, and has been participating in Kusama auctions, et, et cetera. So these are the two big ones coming out of here. Around in 2014, a couple of Bitcoin exchanges emerged in Japan, including Bitfire, Bitbank, or other people. So with this movement, there are some companies who provide technologies to these companies. But most of the innovation was introduced by these exchanges at the time. And uh, maybe in the 2014, 2015, 2016, market dominance of Japanese market was maybe the 70 to 80% of the total trading volume around the world. Then the Japanese regulator, the FSA, decided to introduce a licensing system of the Bitcoin exchanges. The act passed the diet in 2016, and it came into force in April 2017. Also, 2017, 
there was a boom of ICO, and also because the Japanese regulations at that time is relatively welcomed by the market and also by the people. Because of the ICO boom and also the introduction of the sound regulations, the Japanese market boomed. And then lots of people opened their account with exchanges. And together with that, the flyer also developed its own blockchain and uh, other guys are doing the same. So there was uh, some kind of hype in Japanese market. After China firstly banned Bitcoin trading in 2017, lots of flows came to Japan. Also the engineers in China would like to come to Japan, but tragedy happened in 2018. In January 2018, one of the biggest Japanese exchange, CoinCheck, was hacked and stolen around $500 million worth of cryptocurrencies. Then the regulator decided to become very strict to the exchanges. Before that, the FSA welcomes a new trend of fintech. It's not so difficult to get a license to provide a trading service. And the Japanese regulation applies not only to the trading service, but also becoming an intermediary or provide the OTC trading. Then they need to have the license. After that, everything is almost stopped from January 2018. This was the winter time in Japanese market. And in 2019, the FSA decided to introduce new regulations on STOs and also crypto custody regulations. And it was implemented in 2020, last year. So now in order to provide STO, they need to become uh, securities broker dealers. During this time, a couple of overseas entities came into Japan, let's say Coinbase established a branch in Japan and they got license. Also, the OKCoin will be also providing service to Japanese market. Recently, lots of financial institutions are looking to do SD offering. So, for instance, in August this year, Nomura Securities, biggest Japanese broker dealers, and also SBI Securities offered real estate-backed STO to public. Mitsubishi UFJ Trust Bank as a trustee and also the platform provider. And the, the second one is currently under offering right now. So the STO is becoming a boom here in Japan. Now also, as you know, NFTs fascinate the people also in Japan as well. So we see lots of new entries, not only from the financial institutions or the crypto guys, but also from the ad companies or the content holders or the Japanese manga or the anime. The provider of these manga or anime are also like to get into the market. So because as you know, Japan is a big country for digital contents, maybe it will open a new way to provide services in Japan. The history of Japanese blockchain industry is divided three or four parts. First is very 
early age after bankruptcy of Mount Gox. At that time, community was very small. There was,、uh, you know, libertarians and early adopters, and only those people have interest on Bitcoin. So the community was very small. In 2016, Japan enacted the world's first crypto regulation, and the regulation was not strict at all.、Uh, it's a kind of Helping startups to enter into crypto industry. So, from 2016 to 2018, it's a kind of golden age for Japanese crypto industry.、Uh, trading volume of crypto in Japan was number one in the world. There were a lot of crypto exchanges, and crypto exchanges made many advertisements. On TV or something like that, it was the golden age. But in 2018, Coincheck, one of the largest crypto exchange in the world at the time, was hacked. Japanese government decided to regulate crypto exchanges more strictly. After 2018, there was a lot of investigations from Japanese government. To exchanges and exchanges are required to hire more compliance people. For example, in order to list new coins, they should show security compliance and、uh, something like that. And from 2018 to 2020 or something like that, there had been no literal evolution in Japanese crypto industry. So it's a kind of dark age. But from Early 2021, Japanese industry gained energy again、uh, because of NFT and DeFi and price increase of crypto or something like that. Blockchain is not a The community and the culture is everything in blockchain, and I was fascinated to hear how both local Japanese blockchain leaders and experienced expats blend together in what is a multifaceted and sometimes complex ecosystem in Japan. We hear from Marissa Yoshikawa McKnight, head of product for Liquid, Ken, So, and Tamara Soikina, head of communications for Far East Blockchain. Well, first of all, I think that the Japanese crypto community is pretty, I guess, trifurcated across probably three distinct groups. There's a Japanese crypto community that's really focused on, you know, blockchain and education for enterprises and education research. These are the Tokyo universities, the working groups that work with the FSA to develop regulation, and these are very, very Japanese groups of people. These are usually groups that are only speaking fully in Japanese, and they're the ones that are kind of working with regulators, working with the research. And I would say I would describe that as one community, and I would describe then another community of the more foreign community. So I would say they're the ones that are more, you know, foreign companies that are interested in entering the Japanese market. Just as they see the opportunity to enter, but they might not necessarily have local Japanese localization. And then I would say there's a third community of bilingual crypto people. So, I mean, I would say those bilingual communities are really led by some of the exchanges, some of the famous thought leaders. I would say some big organizations like Bitcoin.com, 
with Bitcoin Cash would be part of the bilingual community. I would say exchanges like Liquid would have been part of the bilingual community. Yeah, so I would really say that there's these three distinct communities. I guess similar to how like futures or the electronic trading institu- like institutions were developed in Japan in the 80s and 90s, they kind of follow a similar approach for virtual currencies where they have self-regulatory organizations that are determining the kind of like rules and regulations. So yeah, I would say the two big groups are the JCBA and the JVCEA. And I think the JCBA was one of the first organizations to develop in the Japan blockchain community. I would say that the influence has now shifted to the JVCA, which is the Japan Virtual Currency Exchange Association, which now determines as more the right-hand man to the JFSA to suggest regulation and tokens and you know different blockchain activities, how to further regulate. Yeah, so I would say that these organizations, I think if, if you're a blockchain project or someone who's interested, these are great places to start networking and start to really understand how to operate in a safe zone. Anyone is open to join these organizations, but I would say that the JVCA in particular, it's really heavy with a lot of the exchange operators. You know, the regulated exchanges in Japan will have a representative that goes to the JVCA. And then you have maybe a few other consultants or researchers that are joining these conversations. But I would say it's mostly filled with exchange operators. Japan has a SRO for crypto exchanges. It's certified by the FSA and it's a sole and official SRO who has the sales regulation to roll cryptocurrencies transactions. So all of the exchanges are the member of this SRO. It is called JVCEA. In this world, the speed of development is very fast. So the regulator would not be able to catch up, right? So before introducing new regulations, official regulations, the JVCEA as a self-regulatory organization introduce new rules which will be applicable to member exchanges or other entities. In that way, we would like to avoid very strict regulations. Rather, the FSA would like to defer uh, some of the function to the SRO to match with what is really going on. And this is one of the things. Also, there are a couple of other industrial organizations, something like JCBA, Japan Cryptocurrency Business Association, or the JBA, Japan Blockchain Association. They are not a certified organization, but uh, there are lots of discussions are going on. For instance, JCBA, they have a lot of working group right now, stable coin working group, NFT working group, and also DeFi working group. And also JCBA sometimes uh, discuss the upcoming rules with the FSA. So these industrial organizations function well. Recently, as for the STO, there's a Japan Security Token Offering Association, I'm sorry, JSTOA. They uh, introduce self-regulations on security token offerings. 
For instance, they provide a guideline for the uh, SDR platforms, what kind of function the platform should have. And also they provide what kind of information the broker dealers needs to provide when offering security tokens. This STO association is also functioning well. And let's say the big guys, something like Nomura, Mitsubishi UFJ, Daiwa, or SBI are the members of STO association. And also some other overseas companies are also the member, I believe. And also these days, the consultant for NFT arises. So these are the current development in Japan. Crypto and the blockchain industry became very big compared to you know, several years ago. So there are many key players and key players are different in each sector. For example, enterprise blockchain, large corporations have made experiments. For example, there is a Japan Blockchain Association. Leader of Japan Blockchain Association is Mr. Yuzo Kano, the founder of Bitflyer, and he has a uh, you know, strong influence on community, but even for him, he is not only the guy who has influence on community, so there is no person who has very big influence over all blockchain industry. For crypto, there are two organizations. First organization is Japan Virtual and Crypto Assets Exchange Association. It's a licensed association. We call it JVCEA, regulated under the FSA, and all licensed exchanges are members of JVCEA and make self-regulation over exchanges. JVCEA has strong influence on crypto exchanges, but it cannot propose innovative opinion. So there is another organization for crypto. Uh, it's a Japan Crypto Asset Business Association. It's a kind of industry organization who gather information from crypto-related business persons. There are, you know, many divisions in JCBA, NFT, DeFi, derivative, security, tax, or something like that. And they research crypto innovation, crypto world, and sometimes propose new desirable regulation or desirable tax or something. Yeah, it's a kind of proposed entity which proposes deregulation or something like that. Another one is there is DeFi Association and STO Association. Some of them are members of organizations are overlapped, but some of them are not overlapped. So, you know, the, because industry has grown up, no one knows entire space of Japanese blockchain community. I think that Japan has a fascinating core community. Japanese people as a nation are very good at researching on things. When they go to check out some information, they do it very properly. They're very accurate. And the core community I'm talking about, it's consisted of different members, such as blockchain associations, connecting different companies together and exchanging information, media representatives, exchanges, developers, traders, NFT artists, and many, many more. 
as Japanese people have been very good at researching, also serious at doing business. Sometimes I feel like Japanese people lack a venturous spirit of uh, risking and going fearlessly abroad and, you know, bringing some know-how to the country and stuff. And also I would mention that the strongest crypto platform in Japan is Twitter because it has all the influential people uh, distributing the information for Japanese people in Japanese. Also Telegram and Discord getting uh, more attention from users to get some new information on project trends and regulations and use. YouTube has been originally a kind of weak platform in Japanese crypto, and only maybe this last 12 months, some strong channels has been created and getting more attention with the regular contents. But I would say that comparing to the global, YouTube is very weak in Japan yet, and the size of the communities of each so-called influencer on Twitter is smaller than in global, because in global you can see hundreds of thousands of people, and in Japan the biggest scale would be maybe 60-70,000 people of his audience. We all know the Bitcoin story by now, but what about the wider applications of blockchain technology that have made it big in Japan? We hear from Marissa, Ryu Takaki, IBM's blockchain services leader in Japan, Norbert, Mamoru Fujimoto, CEO of SBI R3 in Japan, and more from Tamara to round us off. Yeah, I think some of the really early stuff, people believe that Bitcoin to be a peer-to-peer -peer currency. So I think some of the really early use cases that we saw in 2017 were things such as the Bit Camera, spend your Bitcoin at Bit Camera, and you know, be able to buy electronic goods in Akihabara. We had use cases like that, which were payment related, which we also see across Rofongi and different merchants that are trying to accept Bitcoin as a currency. And that still partially exists to this day. And I would also add that there were tons of enterprises that have been investing in research. You know, you have NTT, Toyota, these big Japan multinationals that are investing in enterprise blockchain. But I don't think there's been a very concrete example that we can point to. I think that we also were all pretty hopefully excited about the line, the line deal with the, the line blockchain. So Line being, you know, the biggest messaging app in Japan, they also were launching a blockchain and they have launched a blockchain and they've also launched um, cryptocurrency trading inside the messaging app. I don't believe it's taken much traction, but, you know, that would probably be one of the big use cases. And really, I think what's happened is that Japan was a place where there was a lot of projects working but as this regulation came in, it really pushed out a lot of the projects to move to Singapore. And um, all that has been left is really the trading operations. And as of today, it's mostly the FX providers and the more financial operators of Japan, such as DMM, Rakuten, GMO Coin, all these mega conglomerates that already have FX is kind of where the I guess crypto has moved. Definitely around supply chain, especially around uh, traceability fees or provenance. Last year, we had this COVID situation and the, many of the um, industry had some struggle in the supply chain, especially around the, with the suppliers. 
many companies make sure that their supply chain will not be disrupted. So they really make sure that they have the BCP, business contingency plan in place. They make sure that they don't concentrate the suppliers to one specific supplier. They need to make sure that if something happens to the supplier, they have an alternative. So many of the buyers in Japan has a quite a good BCP in place. When we had this COVID-19, uh, many companies um, actually found that uh, although the uh, first-tier supplier was distributed, it, it wasn't the same for the second or third or the, uh, uh, the deeper tiers. What actually happened was the, the second or third-tier company was disrupted due to COVID-19. And because of that, the uh, distributed first year uh, was disrupted. So from COVID-19, many industries in Japan uh, have actually learned they didn't really have this visibility, full um, end-to-end visibility of the supply chain. What they actually found was that when created this kind of end-to-end visibility, it is very difficult to consolidate that data into one single database that is managed by one single entity. In order to make the suppliers comfortable with uh, consolidating their information, they really need a democratic distributed technology like blockchain. That is, uh, I think, the most highly demanded use case we have in Japan. One of the most common use cases that we are seeing in Japan, leveraging this uh, blockchain or DLT technology, is actually around uh, sustainability. Last year, the most of the use cases was uh, purely focused on the supply chain optimization piece. But uh, this year, in addition to that, we are seeing uh, many clients or consortiums want to make sure that they can use this technology to basically make sure that they are in line with the SDGs goals that they have in place. Whether it's on environments, uh, whether it's on food safety, whether it's on uh, sustainable uh, clothing, in many cases, it involves traceability, making sure that the plastics are actually recycled and not um, actually virgin plastics. We need to make sure that the food that we eat uh, or gets on the table is actually organic or safe or maybe even um, under the temperature management that is required. This really needs more broader, wider uh, coverage. That's very difficult for one single entity to basically govern all that end-to-end data. And the reason why they look at at blockchain is that they really need wide uh, coverage. Late yesterday, maybe in Japan, there was this news coming out that there's a digital currency forum, which is kind of managed by the current, which is one of the exchanges, they've come out with a white paper on a, on a private Japanese yen stablecoin. And that is a consortium of somewhere 80 parties. Just from the headline, you talked about being open and allowing innovation to happen. I, I would also say being competitive. If you look at what's going on around the world in different places in terms of DeFi protocols or even new blockchain protocols that maybe also have been developed for a number of years, uh, but getting now really traction, still think of of Algorand, Avalanche, and 
the two of us talked about Mino a bit as well. There's, there's lots of interest in, in that recently. All the DeFi protocols, and it's, it's like it's impossible as a single person trying to keep current to actually wrap the arms around it and be confident you have a good grasp of what's happening. So when I saw this paper and I saw the headline say like 80 parties to it and it includes the three major Japanese banks, it includes the two major telecom companies and includes JR. And do you think like, yeah, this is like Japan Inc. getting their act together, right? Which is a great thing in the first place because it, they tend to move, let's say deliberately to, to give it a positive spin. But wouldn't it be nice right, on, on the outset when you talk about digital currencies or even payments, leave, leave digital currencies out, but even like if you talk about payments independent of the, the medium, right? You would see a competition of traditional banks, digital banks, telecoms companies, right? And clearly in Japan, JR has the most popular prepaid card, Suica. You would see competition across all of these. And when you see a headline that says, we've got this consortium of 80, that's a cartel. It's not a consortium, right? That's a cartel. It takes out competition, which I think is a shame because it avoids creativity and and probably we're missing out on a number of solutions that are out there. Now, the argument is that we're agreeing on a base layer that makes everything interoperable, which is a good argument. And then on top of that, we have a business layer, and that's where then the programmable money sits. It's essentially at the at the business layer with the programmable money where the competition than it's supposed to be. But still, I think it would be much nicer for the consumer if you saw an NTT going against, right, an MUFG and say, like, we actually have the better money. Use NTT money, not the MUFG coin. It will be bank account based, right? We have a, we have a history with open banking here in Japan, which is like similar to crypto, early adopter, right? I would say leading the world because, of course, the UK and, and Europe were very early, but Japan wasn't far behind. But then the implementation was completely botched. So if you had a good open banking implementation, right, where you can get PRSPs, ARSPs uh, functioning properly, then you'd be already 80% of the way of kind of these digital currency models. The remaining 20% being the programmability, which arguably could do with apps on, on top of open banking as well. So I'm, I'm not sure this is like, right, everybody gets excited because obviously Japan is the third largest economy in the world. There's a big consortium that comes out and says like, we're doing a digital yen. I don't think it's that earth shattering as some people wish it to be. The first engagement I had as the head of the blockchain with SBI Holdings is that the project with Ripple. As you may know that the SBA has the largest the outside shareholder of Ripple, and we set up a joint venture arm called SBI Ripple Asia. I was appointed as a CTO of that joint venture initially. That's actually year 2016. I was in San Francisco learning what Ripple can do and find out that their ex-current technology 
Actually, the brand name was changed already. It's a technology that makes the international cash transfer easier and less costly. I brought the technology back to Japan and I started implementing that technology in Japan. That actually the first experiment, but it's not just experiment, it's a real experiment. So I implemented that technology to the company called SBA Remit, which is a remittance company within our group. And I was actually exploring who can be the counterparty of the SBA Remit. And fortunately, we find a good business partner in Thailand, who is the Siam Commercial Bank, who are also interested in making use of the Ripple technology at that point in time. So I built a system for SBI Remit, and also they are working together with the Siam Commercial Bank technology team to set up the corridor. That is actually the first Asian corridor making use of the Ripple technology. That's from Japan to Thailand. So that was my first one. Actually, the second engagement I was involved is starting up the cryptocurrency exchange business. We set up at that point in time, we called it the SBI virtual currencies, which is now called SBI VC trade. In Japan, in 2016, new regulation was in place, which actually uh, that was the first regulation around the globe, I believe, which is regulating the cryptocurrency exchange. So I actually, as a part of the blockchain area, my boss also actually appointed some other guy to head the, uh, the VC trade cryptocurrency exchange. And I was also appointed as a kind of CIO role in that company. So that's actually the second role, independent company, but actually under the blockchain umbrella. So I actually are working on the setting up the cryptocurrency exchange mechanism. Because I already have experience on the stock brokerage uh, in online trading. So we brought in the kind of similar technology on the online trading part. But actually the challenge I had was that they're setting up a wallet technology, which is pretty new to me. So I worked with some external vendors who have some sort of experience on the Bitcoin, Ethereum wallet. I also have to talk to the financial service agency who don't really know what the cryptocurrency is. So that's also a challenge. It's a kind of educational process as well as a learning process. You know, Japan has some alumni who now working abroad, such companies as Star Network, which recently won the DOTS parachain auction and was officially connected to the relay chain as one of the five parachains. It's a very good project, and I well know the CEO of the company who is based in Dubai, and the company is registered in Singapore. But this is, you know, like a foreign project already because of the uh, factfully, you know, registered. But for Japanese projects, I would name JPYC. It's a Japanese yen-linked stablecoin, Japan's first ERC-20 in-house prepared payment method. So it's unique, a kind of legal hack that has been found by one of Japanese entrepreneurs. And now anyone without KYC can purchase JPYC by Japanese yen or ISA and in nearest future by BTC as well. It doesn't take any commissions and it already have some interesting collaboration domestically. For example, one of the measure gift card providers. So people can basically buy JPYC for Japanese yen and use it as a gift card uh, and 
exchanges the things, the real presents and things. And also uh, this project already has a collaboration with local government of some prefectures to participate in very popular Japanese system of tax paying to your local prefecture. In Japan, there is a system when you can choose where to pay your taxes. It's a kind of charity project. You donate the sum of money to the some prefecture budget. And instead of that, in exchange to that, you receive some gifts of, from local goods and everything that they decide that's supposed to be good from that prefecture. So this project is working for both mass adoption Real people not connecting to crypto yet. Somebody who cannot pass KYC for some reasons can use JPYC and be connected to crypto. And one more interesting thing is in the middle of the NFT craze in Japan, exchanges did not offer BNB or Matic to Japanese users and Japanese users has limited access to them. But using JPYC, you can be enabled to access those through DeFi. So it creates some, you know, investment opportunities and improves uh, literacy by allowing people to access to markets other than ESA, which, you know, the fees are skyrocketing. As if that wasn't enough, we're taking you deeper into the backstory of some well-known and less well-known blockchain companies in Japan, starting with Mamoru and R3, Kazumasa Miyazawa, president of Soromitsu Japan, Kohei Kurehara, CEO of Privacy by Design Lab, and Aya tells us more about Marukari. In 2017, R3 CEO David Rata came to Japan seeking for fund raising. And actually, I met with David Rata together with my CEO, uh, Kitao-san. And actually, Kitao-san is very keen to learn what R3 is doing. And he's very aggressive on investing to the good company. And after the conversation with David Rata, my boss, Kitao-san, decided to make investment to R3. That's actually the sudden decision. And uh, David was also surprised to hearing that yeah, the CEO suddenly make a decision to invest uh, to R3. It's a big amount. I cannot really disclose the, uh, the exact figure. But it's not after the long due diligence process, but after just a one-hour interview with David Rutter. That's a surprising moment to me. I was appointed as an external board member to R3, together with other investors around the globe. Then actually what happened is that R3 is just growing, but still they are focusing on the U.S. and the European market. But I would like to bring it into Japanese market. And as you may understand that the uh, Japanese is a kind of very, very closed market. All of the business are conducted using Japanese language, not English at all. So that's, uh, my struggle is that the, even we introduce our three people to Japanese potential customers, as they only speak, as they means that the R3 people only speak in English, it's very, very hard to sell Koda or R3 product to Japanese customers. Because most of the Japanese uh, companies, people don't really understand English, so unfortunately. Well, of course, uh, it, it's different in some companies, but mostly. It's very hard to sell product in English. So I recommend David Rada to set up a joint venture company or subsidiary in Japan to sell Koda. And I volunteer to lead that arm. 
That happened in 2019. So we are developing uh, this consortium type of the blockchain, what we call uh, Hyperledger Iroha. So Hyperledger Iroha is Hyperledger family that was founded by uh, Linux Foundation. So the Linux Foundation started to standardize the, this uh, blockchain technology uh, since the year 2016. And so we uh, registered to their project. And then Linux Foundation have selected three companies among the 260 companies in the world. So one is IBM, the second is Intel, and third is Solamitsu. So because the Solamitsu's architecture is very smart and simple and very fast, we have developed this Hyperledger Iroha, but we have already given this source code to the Linux Foundation. So now this uh, Hyperledger Iroha is open source so that everybody can use. We have two founders. Uh, one is uh, Makoto Takemiya. He was a USA uh, student, but uh, he came to Japan and changed the name. And then now lives in uh, Dubai so that he can make better blockchain than Bitcoin or Ethereum. That is a uh, hyperledger Iroha. We uh, issued the version 1.0. It's a commercial version of the hyperledger Iroha, May 2019. And also, uh, National Bank of Cambodia is inquiring us, and they are interested in our uh, hyperledger Iroha blockchain. They like to use blockchain for their central bank digital currency. So Takemiya and myself went to Cambodia and then discussed with them. And finally, we were selected. And then we start the development of central bank digital currency from uh, 2017. Finally, last year, the 2020 October, they, they have launched the uh, official launch, this uh, world first uh, central bank digital currency using blockchain technology. After one year passed, their system uh, never stopped. Already one third of the population, which is a 600 million people in Cambodia is using our central bank digital currency, which we call a Bakon. The Bakon is a name of the oldest temple in Cambodia. So because of these activities, actually I was selected as a 30 people in, in Japan who contributed to world economy by uh, Newsweek in Japan. After that, Central Bank of Lao also interested in to uh, use the, the same similar systems for their Central Bank digital currency. So Japan government, JICA, JICA is a Japan government, has contract with Bank of Lao and then we are now started to study about the possibility of central digital currency in Laos as well. Privacy by Design Lab, this is the general organization leading the momentum of privacy by design because the privacy is very important from the, the social perspective. The old consumers or users should be protected their privacy. It's not only be established by the regulations, but also the consumer perception is becoming 
species of the uh, companies or the business who are using uh, customer data too much. Our organization is committing to spread these words and they're working for the future identity, future directions of the new data economy. I think the Web3-based identity is ideal to give back the lights for the consumers can control it as a capability to uh, hand in the data as much as they want to give the service providers or somebody who will be authorized with you. Identity is preconceptual. For example, the Microsoft is developing their own identity technology and they had uh, some of the experiments here. Then also they do the same things in the global market. It's uh, very costful right now. Then it's uh, very hard to take on the implementations in this moment because I think uh, we have three issues. The one is is a data taxonomy, which means we are not categorize the data, what the data is on the blockchain or not. Uh, they also, it's very hard to discern what data has the high risk to store on the blockchain. The second thing is identifications. We have uh, some of the national identified credit. For example, the Japanese government is providing the national numbers. All the nations have it here. Then it could be used for the identification purpose. But this is a very limited use because national identity is very unique of itself. So we have to limit the utilities for that. It's been a controversial whether this identity should be used for the other purposes, such as the uh, private access or other things. So we are not uh, solve these issues right now that we have to find another way to prove who you are. So that's the other things. The third point is the benefit. From the private company, it's not easy to make any money just uh, exchanging the identity parts instead of the using the centralized identity such as the Facebook ID logging or Google. Those are very reasonable to choose for them to make any money. So from the business perspective, I think the blockchain Web3 identity is it's a very conceptual, it's a very ideal, and uh, it's very good for the experimental purpose. But in the practice, it's not easy. We have to go over the, some of the issues in advance then to make in a, a practical way and also the beneficial way for the private companies or the government in next decades. So Mercari is, just for anyone who doesn't know, it's a company that um, is probably most well-known for its marketplace application. So you could imagine it as a little bit like an eBay of sorts. Um, so people are able to buy and sell used goods. And Mercari as a company has always tried to like promote this sort of like recycling culture and the ability to bring you know new value to things that people own. Mercari had established a couple of other sort of businesses such as Meripay and they kind of got into fintech and, and payments in that area. And then uh, Metacoin was established actually this year in April 2021. Metacoin is still very, very a new part of Metacardi Group. We just launched our NFT platform for a Japanese baseball league. I think one of the reasons also why I started working at Metacoin is 
actually before joining, I was the co-founder of a company in Japan called Bassett, and we were doing a lot of blockchain analysis work. So we're doing a lot of transaction analysis, trying to help smaller companies get their regulatory stuff in order. I had a very also strong interest in looking into what types of transaction behavior there is on-chain. Mirukari saw that business and then they decided to acquire us as a team. And now I'm here in the NFT side of Mirukoin and maybe putting a bit of my regulatory or like analysis stuff on the back burner for a bit and getting back into arts, which is actually my background. You know I have a soft spot for blockchain lawyers, and I find it super interesting to understand the role that the legal community plays in supporting blockchain and crypto across the world. We hear from Ken and So about how their roles as blockchain and crypto lawyers have evolved over the years. As a lawyer, I advise to exchanges, SDO, issuers, platformer for NFTs. We've been very busy advising these companies right now. Most of the advice is financial regulatory advices, how to comply with the regulations, whether your services are regulated or not. Let's say these days, there are lots of inquiry from overseas companies who would like to enter into Japan. In this case, we often ask whether we need to establish a subsidiary in Japan or not. Our service would fall within the definition of cryptocurrency exchange or not. So uh, we are providing the advices to uh, those guys, including major crypto exchanges and also global stablecoin issuers. I cannot name it, but I'm doing these kind of things. I started my activity in cryptos in 2013. At that time, uh, I was in Nishimura Nasahi, the largest law firm in Japan, and treated finance. In 2013, Moscow company approached me to sue Mountbox, uh, the largest exchange at that time, and located in Tokyo. And in 2014, Mt. Gox bankrupted. At that time, I thought Bitcoin was great technology and a very interesting product. But if there was hacking, Japanese government might make regulation on crypto. And if the regulation was not good one, uh, maybe Bitcoin or Bitcoin economy in Japan would be destroyed. So I, I lobbied Japanese governments and politicians. And through lobbying, I became acquaintance to many startups and community. I noticed that Bitcoin and blockchain had uh, more future. So I decided to establish my own law firm. And since 2015, you know, most of my work uh, relates to Bitcoin, crypto, and blockchain. Crypto is on blockchain, but even for crypto, regulation would apply. Startups ask law firm about regulations, and we, we check you know, the business and products, and if there is any problem, I inform those problems to startups and propose if there is alternative way to avoid regulations. Uh, sometimes we advise those alternatives, and some clients 
owner take license. In such case, we we have those clients to take license. And you know, if there is no regulatory issues or if they take license, we draft agreements for new business or we draft terms and conditions of new business or something like that. The second role is to help compliance and governance issues for already licensed entities such as exchanges. In Japan, exchanges are regulated under the crypto asset law and the regulation under the crypto asset law is very strict. So they are required to set up robust governance, like internal governance and internal control and AML and CFT or something like that. So we help exchanges and other licensed entities to comply the regulation. And what about the recent excitement around NFTs and DAOs? With incredible depth in gaming, art, content IP in the areas of anime and manga, and a few other surprise organizations joining the party, Japan has definitely got to be one of the most exciting NFT communities right now. More on this from Aya and Tamara. I think one of the strong starts for NFTs in Japan was actually through the gaming route. So there's like a platform called Makoto Heroes. Makoto Heroes has quite a few users compared to other blockchain games. So I think that they have a very good start here. You know, if you look anywhere in Tokyo or other parts of Japan on transit, you're on the train, people have their, their phones out, they're on their way to work. There's such a huge number of people are just like playing games the whole time. And I think so the, that combination of like NFTs and gaming was a very clever start. It's kind of broken out of just gaming and really more into the art side as well. And I think that a lot of collaborations are happening now with some famous artists um, like Yayoi Kusuma, Takashi Minakami. He's the guy who does like the, the flowers art. So they're doing a lot of NFT projects now, well-known manga or like anime IPs, which are also breaking into NFTs now. Um, like Osama Tezuka, he is the, the artist for Astro Boy. A lot of his stuff is now moving into the NFT world. So I think, you know, that, that background and like manga and like that desire to collect things or be a fan of like a certain universe of creative content really works well with the NFT side. Japan has always been famous for its content creation as a strong area of the country itself. It has a lot of creators, including traditional for Japan art, like anime or manga. And also, you know, contemporary art, all digital kind of arts. It has a lot of talented web designers and VR artists. And those people have been struggling to monetize their work for many years, actually. But now with the popularity of OpenSea, many Japanese NFT marketplaces growing and, you know, appearing daily, those people have finally uh, got the chance to sell their works. In Japan, we already have few examples of NFTs has been sold for very good money. Like in Japan, we have musical group called Perfume and their NFT, NFT with their like uh, image has been sold for 3.2 million Japanese yen. One of the entrepreneurs of Japanese business area has been selling his tweets for huge money and also a Japanese businessman who has been in space and just got back yesterday. He also going to sell some NFTs. So NFT is very hot area for both artists and business people. 
I would say that it seems to be trend that for people who has been digital arts for a while now, maybe for two or three years, that kind of people has got the chance to, to become big at this time when NFT is hot and there are some popular platforms that can be used. But for people who are just trying to join NFT area at this timing, it seems to be a bit hard because now in Japan, uh, the best chances are for people who has, has their audiences already built. People start uh, researching and discussing Metaverse for a while already in Twitter, in YouTube, in Discord. There have been books, there have been they already created the association, Metaverse Association, but it's not, I'm not sure you should use it for the podcast because it, it, it has some bad rumors about it because it's not actually includes uh, Metaverse players who has been in the space for a while, you know, it's only crypto. And that's why it's not very co-created, you know, because it's just trying to be first in Metamars, it's not, not so much related players inside it. So I'm not sure it's a good example, but Metaverse is going to be big. Japan. Also, DAO is a big trend, and as everything in crypto, it's all very put together, all very related. The NFT, Web3, DAO, and other areas are very closely tied together. For example, at this moment, there are more and more opportunities for Telegram and Discord communities to conduct AMAS and invest in the project. So Japanese people are gathering together, you know, to research, to do daily and to invest into the projects through such kind of events. So it's very similar to community VCs and DAOs. And recently, uh, some individuals also started to participate and gain income from DAOs. And in Japan, DAOs are not legally regulated. But there is nothing illegal about individuals earning income from them. So it is expected that this trend will be increasing inside the crypto community. And in 2020, it is expected that NFTs, which are the easiest way to handle legally in Japan, not regulated, not strict, free to do everything to be done, will be the starting point for the Web3 popularization. Blockchain Bonus round. Blockchain and decentralized technology is about global borderless collaboration, and Japan is embracing this ethos through the Swiss Business Hub, an organization focused on cross-pollination of blockchain initiatives between the two countries, and providing a route for emerging Japanese blockchain talent to thrive in a less strictly regulated environment. We hear more from Toshi Matsuda, who has been driving Swiss-Japanese collaboration over the recent years. This business have we try to promote the Japanese companies, uh, you know, business establishment in, in Switzerland. We have a five focus industry: robotics, drone, AI, personalized health, and blockchain. So blockchain is one of the most important target for us. Blockchains are mostly uh, we we should target to the startups. We try to organize seminar to introduce uh, you know Swiss environment. Our success story is so far is like a multinational big companies like NEC or, you know, Panasonic, those companies have a big success story for, for the healthcare industry and other presenting uh, existing in the field. But I think blockchain is the only field that small company can compete with those kind of, uh, you know, Japanese large-scale companies. That's why I like it. Holding a cryptocurrency as a business it's very difficult for Japanese companies. So they try to go a new world. They, they first tried to get, go to the Singapore two or three years ago. 
So Singapore became a Japanese hub for the blockchain companies. But uh, Singapore also restricted recently. So they are trying to find out a new place for the uh, more liberated uh, you know, environment. So some of them choose Switzerland. Some of them try to do the mining service from Switzerland because in Switzerland, uh, 80% of electricity coming from water. So they can use sustainable energy, but yeah, they, they gave up because in Switzerland, electricity fee is very expensive. DeFi NFT is, is a business from now. So many Japanese young entrepreneurs is very interested in coming to Switzerland to open up uh, those kind of projects right now. So one guy called Mr. Hiyoki Leona, he's very uh, young, but uh, very high-level engineers, developers, and coders. He last year opened a company in Lucerne, which is a center of uh, Switzerland. It's a small town near the Crypto Valley. So he tried to uh, develop a uh, you know, service like NFT and D5 from now. He has a very strong influence from Japan. So Japanese entrepreneurs, it's a learning from him and uh, thinking about come to Switzerland right now to follow his example and uh, open up a DeFi the NFT project right now. You know, NEC, the biggest IT company in Japan, is a merged Swiss fintech company, Avalok, which is not a pure blockchain company, but you know, NEC is very strong in uh, you know software product. So they try to get into the uh, fintech industry. So Japanese companies have definitely tried to utilize blockchain technologies for their products. For example, like uh, Toyota, they have a blockchain center four or five years ago. deal with uh, so many parts for the car you know, manufacturing. So they try to manage all the, all the parts and all the process by blockchain. We still supply the connection uh, matchmaking service with the uh, Swiss blockchain companies for Toyota. Toyota is one of the most serious companies which try to adapt the blockchain product. Logistic company is very serious. Nippon Express, they also contact with us and uh, try to find out cutting edge blockchain technologies from Switzerland or from all around the world. For the trading, they still use paper. So blockchain is a key application for them. For the old industries and all the applications, Japanese companies are serious about adopting blockchain technologies to their product. Blockchain never saves the world. We mentioned the importance of research at the start of the show, and academia in Japan plays a crucial role in supporting not just the Japanese ecosystem, but also some of the world's best-known layer ones. We hear from Mario Larangera from the prestigious Tokyo Institute of Technology on the role that universities play in advancing blockchain technology in Japan. I would say that's twofold, right? One is like develop knowledge. So, so basically do research, so develop more concretely. And that actually connects to what I do on, on a daily basis, which is basically develop the protocols that will be running the systems and develop the cryptography needed. Because sometimes you achieve this uh, goal, you describe what you want. So the requirement of what your system do, but you, you have to research how to get there. And in the case of blockchain, there's a lot of cryptography in that. But there is also a part of like education, educational goal, right? I'm based in Tokyo and I work at Tokyo Institute of Technology. And we actually developed a course 
a very introductory course, and it, it started in 2018. It basically is to give an introduction to how blockchain systems work. And, and in particular, we do the connection between the cryptography and the blockchain. We are trying exactly to fulfill this educational goal, not only try to develop new technology, but also nurture this the, the education. So people, if they listen to blockchain, they'll at least have a rough idea of how it works and even some of how the cryptography works. This is something that from my experience in these years, there is this idea, I think that's derived from the, from the developer world that do things fast. But in cryptography, it's not enough for the development of a system to just come up with some protocol and do not offer a, an argument or a mathematical argument why that works, why that's safe. So we go to the certain stand to even to define what the meaning of safe or secure for that particular system. So because it depends if it's a signature system, if it's an encryption system, what means secure is different. So, and that also was a go educational goal of our course. In principle, uh, ac academia I think has this role of like creating knowledge and teaching the, the technology. But if you connect to this in general, right? But if you connect to in the case of blockchain and, and more widely used infrastructure, then you can have this, this another player like uh, government, for example. And then I think academia could support uh, government to design and take decisions when they are building such a wide infrastructure. With such a long history in blockchain and crypto, world-class universities and strong blockchain associations, you might expect there's a large pool of blockchain talent being produced in Japan. But that's where you'd be wrong. We uncover more on the concerning talent crisis in Japan with inputs from Norbert, Aya, Marissa and Kohei. My view would be more general and that is it centers around DX, digital transformation as it's called here in Japan, a general lack of engineer, software engineering talent, technical talent, a projected cliff in 2025. That's a 2025 digital cliff where in numbers, especially in the major banks and insurance companies, so many of the legacy mainframe systems will need to be replaced at some point. Uh, people will go into retirement and there isn't the talent that comes after that to take it to the next level, to the next generation of technology. You have that issue. And I think many of the, the companies are looking abroad for, for good engineering talent. The problem is that the Japanese pay level has been largely frozen over the last 20, 20 years, pretty flat because you have been in a zero interest environment for an extended period. And so it's, it's not necessarily attractive, but you see some key positions, even in Japanese companies, I think, really shattering a compensation ceiling. You would not have seen these numbers before, but in order to be globally competitive, they really need to open the purse strings. The other major challenge and obstacle is that most of the large corporates don't own their technology. 
And to a certain extent, it has happened in the West over the last 30 years too, the, the outsourcing of non-core functions, et cetera. But it's even on, let's say, what you would consider core to your business. Many of the Japanese companies use system integrators, Fujitsu, entity data, and the like, to build and, and even then operate their systems. And they, they don't really have the in-house talent. And it was maybe okay for a while, but every business these days is a technology business. Uh, I don't think we need to argue about that. And if you don't have any technology competence, at some point you will start struggling. And I think we're seeing the point very clearly. And I think the outward view is always Japan is a high-tech country, but the high-tech country is really in hardware, not in software. It's definitely a struggle, I feel like. I don't want to downplay um, the people who are working in blockchain and, and who have you know just amazing skills and talent. They exist, but I feel like there's just not so many of them. From my experience of working at various crypto companies in Japan, I feel like there's a pretty strong number of people who are coming in from outside the country. It's not that they in particular have a crypto background, but I just think that they're bringing to the table maybe certain other skill sets in the development side of things and also perspective that makes them a strong asset in the companies here in Japan. But it's definitely changing. And I think that it may be true, especially for certain kinds of blockchains, like Flow, for example, has a very strong Japanese community, actually. Again, I think that's probably because of this, like the NFT thing. Flow is kind of really designed around being usable in the, in the NFT use case more than anything else. So I think that that's one thing to look at in the future is to see how the NFT scene actually will probably change the demographic of, of people who are working in crypto and, and have certain kinds of like blockchain development skills. It's been difficult, I think. One thing to note about Japan is that the domestic population is aging quite a bit. You have a very strong aging population, not enough young people to replace the traditional workplace. So pretty much for every one job that's open in Japan, you have an average of maybe two applicants, okay? You also have a lack of English speakers in Japan. And I believe that the blockchain crypto ecosystem is very much English dominant still to this day. You have a lack of, I guess, education in Japanese to really educate further people. And then if you do have bilingual candidates, these blockchain cryptocurrency jobs, people aren't necessarily ready to take the risk to really work because they have very safe roles. You know, Japan has a very strict firing process and pretty much everyone, when they start working for a company, thinks that they're going to be working there for life. And I think that still exists. And if you're bilingual, then you're also getting paid fairly well at Google or you're you know, working at Google or the banks. And I think they're still not ready to take that pay cut or take the risk in working in a new industry that they're unsure about. So I think it's definitely very difficult to get talent and retain talent in Japan because of those reasons of the really talented people are still sticking to working at these um, mega companies. And, you know, startups are not necessarily seen as, and people in Japan are extremely scared of failure. So they're very hesitant to join something that is high risk. I think we need more people to come to the blockchain field because we are very small numbers of the community, the engineers, the business 
the creators of the new technology, the opportunities, many people is been involved with the Bitcoin who buy and sell. It's it just uh, traders. It's just uh, the kind of the personal interest. So we have to nurture the creator communities who is making the market. I think this is one of the big issues. And also we have uh, very few people developing the core technologies. I think the core engineers, core developer is coming from the Western countries almost. So this is one of the big issues. We are very small communities who create a business uh, with the blockchain right now. That's, uh, some people is trying to uh, do it, but it's kind of the vendor approach to update of the system, not just to create a new business model on the blockchain. So this is the very big issues here. We tend to uh, see the blockchain is a new technology, new solution. It's not the opportunity for the market. It's a uh, sticking to the mindset. We have to change the mind. The blockchain is the new market creations that is necessary for us. Then we have to push this concept to the market to increase the more people is involved in the blockchain as a creator. Blockchain wird nicht die Welt retten. And the talent challenge also extends to the matter of diversity. We get the thoughts of Aya and Marissa on diversity within the blockchain community in Japan. I don't want to be like a Debbie Downer, but <laughs> I think it's not, it's a lot of improvement to be done. I see, especially in the developer side of things, there's not a lot of women that I see at a lot of blockchain companies. I've seen, however, actually more on the management side. I wouldn't say 50-50 by any means, but um, I've definitely seen companies where, you know, there are women in, I would say, higher ranking positions or in leadership positions. But on the development side, I think it's kind of very sparse, and which is kind of sad because some of like the most talented and, and, and sharp developers that I've met here in Japan are women, but there's just so few of them. I can recall more just from like the more startup side of things, like the, the smaller startups or the companies that may be large now, but had a startup beginning as opposed to the larger institutions who got into crypto. The startup side actually has had women in leadership. And I think that a lot of that maybe is coming from a younger or like a more a fresher perspective among people who are also like working there. That might be one thing. Honestly, I think I see so many women on the creative side of things, women in the, in the NFT side as creators. But as I said, like, I think it, Japan has, has a very complicated relationship with gender and um, there's still so much to be done. <laughs> Japan's workplace culture is definitely still a bit behind or maybe not behind is the right word, but I still think that it's a very male-dominant culture women are also not necessarily seen to be put in leadership roles or put on leadership tracks, I would say, because they often think that if you put a woman in a leadership track, that at some point she'll get married, have a kid. And I believe about 80% of women, once they have a kid in Japan, don't necessarily return to the workplace. I think they're very hesitant to continue to promote women and keep women in the workplace and I would say that there's not very much work-life balance in Japan as well. The working culture is very much work from 9 a.m. till 7, 8 p.m. You can't leave until your manager leaves. 
it's also a very seniority system. So then once you're done working, I think there's a lot of relationship building that needs to be done after the office. So people will, you know, go out for drinks until 11 p.m., 12 a.m. and on repeat. And I think that that working culture of being at the office all day and then going out afterwards, maybe three to four times a week is something that is quite difficult for people who might be starting families or uh, I guess like women specifically to be part of the finance technology working field. And because age is such an important factor in Japan, naturally, you know, the age and thought leaders that would emerge, people always will respect someone who's older rather than somebody who might be young and innovative. Blockchain is so is there still hope for Japan? And can it become the blockchain and crypto leader it once was before the unfortunate events surrounding Mt. Gox and Coincheck? We hear from Norbert, So, Mamoru, Ken and Aya on what they believe Japan needs to do to regain its position as a leading blockchain nation. I think it's an openness to foreign systems because the benefit that you have when you are a late adopter is that Many of the problems have been solved, or many of the lessons have been learned. So if you if you take it from the position of Japan and transfer it into right, whatever telephone language, it, it feels like in terms of software overall, Japan is still like maybe not quite a telegraph, but it's it's like it feels like early landline kind of state. And you can skip the early mobile phones and you can move to the smartphones directly because you've seen what other people have done. Again, bring it back to these DCJPY proposal. In order to build like this common layer infrastructure, how many different protocols could you look at now and to find out what actually works for you? And for the hell of it, take Paxos. Paxos is on, on GitHub. And you can take a, a USD stablecoin, you can amend it and adjust it to your specific needs, but maybe not too much. So it becomes like a, a fork, maybe a, a slightly more a colored coin or so. Now, you really don't want this to run on Ethereum with the gas fees. I, I get this, right? But the point is just you don't need to reinvent the wheel and you need to get away from this thinking that the, the, the Japanese exceptionalism of seeing everything is so different that you need to build your own systems. There's lots of information out there that just doesn't get consumed here. And it, it feels a bit that vaults, vaults and hats, um, actually I'm German, so we had a vault through our country that, that was pretty dividing, but vaults in, in hats are even harder to break down. And I think what China does is you have the firewall of China that prohibits the free flow of information. You actually don't have any physical or regulatory inhibitancy in Japan, except for the, the wall in people's heads. And that is right a very difficult one to break down. Deregulation and reform of taxes necessary to boost blockchain industry further. Blockchain and crypto cannot be separated even for you know, enterprise blockchain. Some of them use tokens and some of startups gather funds from 
ICO, STO, or grant from Brooks and Group or something like that. In Japan, if organizations have crypto asset at the end of the year, they are required to pay tax on unrealized profit. Even if they don't sell granted crypto or ICO crypto, so it's a kind of obstacle for some blockchain companies to start business in Japan. And the second obstacle in Japan is strict regulation. In order to secure exchanges and in order to protect consumers and in order to prevent terrorism finance, Japan has taken strict regulation. Strict regulation has benefit, but of course it has disadvantage. And if blockchain company owner sell small amounts of tokens to investors, or if they wanna hold custody of other people's crypto, even it's a very small amount, and they are required to take the license for big exchanges. To take the license is not so difficult, but for small startups, it's very tough. Well, actually, CBDC is the big topic, not only the technology-wise, but also the political-wise. Many countries, well, actually, our neighbor countries too, are looking into this some uh, big opportunity, well, partially the, uh, for the uh, sake of kind of a national marketing perspective, but it is a big trend. We don't have any driving force like uh, financial inclusion in Japan because most of the people already have a bank account and not really seeking for the financial inclusion. So the adoption of the CBDC context is slightly different here. It's still uh, viewed as an experiment or just a competitive technology against other countries. So that is actually the challenge, but still actually Bank of Japan is uh, looking into the new technology. And we are also working with some of the Bank of Japan people to look into the uh, wholesale CBDC and cross-border CBDC, which will be potentially introduced by some other countries. At that point of time, we do not want to be delayed to adapt the new technology. So that's actually the motivation. Japanese regulation is I think, in a sense, advanced, but it takes time to get license. Maybe in order to get the crypto exchange license, it takes more than one year. And also, in order to become a securities broker dealer, it takes more than one year right now. Japan has a regulatory sandbox, but it is not used much. Maybe from the regulatory side, if we make our regulatory sandbox system more friendly to users. In order to issue new tokens, you need to undergo license by yourself or entrust the exchanges, regulated exchanges to do that. So it's not easy to, let's say, issue a token. If, let's say, they would be able to issue a token under the realtor sandbox regime, then there's lots more project would be launched in Japan, I think. Also, currently, stable coins, something like USDC or USDT, are not widely used in Japan because of the uncertainty of the regulations. So we'd like to have more clear regulations 
not so harsh ones, of course. If we have these kind of sound regulations, I would say that a more use case uh, by using the stable coins would increase. From the perspective of the tax, the Japanese tax is very high. So for instance, if the company holds the cryptos, then you have to evaluate at the fiscal year end. This is the reason why the Japanese corporation would not like to hold cryptos. Currently, I understand that uh, U.S. entities, U.S. big companies, tech companies, are getting involved in cryptos, but Japanese ordinary corporations are not doing that because of this tax reason. So maybe tax reform is necessary to promote this industry. I think I see like kind of two or three really big things that need to happen. One is that I already mentioned like that sort of need to incorporate into existing infra. If we're already able to use digital cash uh, in like vending machines and stuff, like you're going to have to compete against that system if you're going to make anything, especially on the payment side, that relates to blockchain to really a strong foothold. The second thing is to make it easy and I would say fun. One of the reasons why I say that is like, a lot of people, maybe especially in my age group, don't have a lot of computer literacy. And what I mean by that is just generationally, Japan kind of went like straight to cell phones for a certain group of people. Like, unlike uh, in North America, you know, where, where kids are growing up with a desktop PC in their bedroom or a laptop in their bedroom, or they just use it at home and use a computer, there isn't that kind of culture or up- upbringing isn't quite as common. And I think a lot of people went straight to cell phones or smartphones. If you understand mobile apps as like something that have generally fewer options, um, more user-friendly interfaces, they are limited, of course, in what they can do. And people who are just so used to smartphones and apps that are on smartphones, as opposed to like running you know, an application in, in Windows, the blockchain experience has to tailor to that a little bit. And so it needs to be like very user-friendly, a lot of hand-holding, um, fun, and maybe like device agnostic, I think is, is, a, is a big thing. Thanks again for listening to the Blockchain Won't Save the World podcast. As always, opinions in this episode are mine and those of my guests alone. If you want to find out more, please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. Check out some of the other episodes on the Blockchain Won't Save the World podcast and check out the YouTube channel also called Blockchain Won't Save the World. Stay safe out there.